Hello and welcome to the Skin and Wound Care course. My name is Dorothy Doty. I'll be your instructor for this course. We're going to start with anatomy and physiology of the skin across the lifespan. So here are your objectives. You want to, at the end of this class, be able to describe the layers of the skin and the soft tissue in terms of the key structures and functions. You want to be able to describe changes in the skin across the lifespan and especially to know the implications for nursing management. You should be able to differentiate between the skin and tissue layers that are capable of regeneration and those that are not, and we will emphasize that because it's important in terms of wound healing. You should be able to describe the characteristics of healthy skin and the implications for routine skin care. And finally, you should be able to utilize correct dermatologic terminology when you're describing skin lesions and wounds. Now you're going to view this lesson. Um, you're going to complete the online self-study learning exercises and you should read chapter one in the core curriculum if you need additional information. Now we have divided this first class into two sections. So you're gonna see the overview for part one and then the summary for part one and then the overview and the summary for part two. If you want to take a break, you can. If you want to keep moving through, you can do that as well. So in part one, we're going to discuss the characteristics of normal skin. We're going to talk about the skin and soft tissue layers, specifically the epidermis, the dermis, the subcutaneous tissue, and the muscle. And we're going to talk about strategies to keep the skin healthy. So let's talk about the skin in kind of big picture terms. First of all, it's the largest organ system in the body. It's 21 square feet. So we kind of know this, but we really don't think of the skin most of the time as being such an important organ system. When you talk to nurses, we tend to focus on the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary system, the renal system, the neurologic system and the skin kind of fades into the background unless there's a major problem. But for those of you who have taken care of burn patients, those of you who have taken care of patients with necrotizing fasciitis, with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, or any other condition that causes massive skin loss, you recognize that the skin is actually critical to health and to survival because it plays the critical role of separating the internal environment and the external environment. When you think about burn patients, what do we worry about? Well, we worry in the early days about fluid and electrolyte imbalance because they're losing copious amounts of fluid from the internal environment. Throughout the length of the burn, until we get closure, we worry about infection because they've lost that barrier. So when you think of the skin, you think of it as creating that barrier, that dividing line between the internal environment and the external environment. You think of it as holding in critical fluids and keeping out dangerous pathogens and irritants. So we obviously want to keep the skin healthy. Now, what are the characteristics of healthy skin? When you're providing skin care, you should always be using products and protocols that help to keep the skin dry but supple and acidic. So let's talk about each one of those. 
When we talk about keeping the skin dry, we don't mean dry as in cracking and flaking. We mean dry as in not wet. You know that macerated skin is vulnerable skin because when the skin is macerated, it means that the cells are overhydrated. Overhydrated cells are stretched. The cell membrane is stretched. That macerated skin becomes extremely vulnerable to minor mechanical trauma and to pathogenic invasion. So we want it dry as in not wet, but we want it supple. We want it soft and able to withstand minor frictional forces. We'll talk more about that. And we want to maintain an acidic pH. So the pH of normal skin ranges somewhere between about four and 6.8. Once the skin becomes alkaline in pH, it's much more vulnerable. So you probably remember hearing the, about the acid mantle of the skin. But what they mean by that is that the acidity that is characteristic of healthy skin actually helps to reduce bacterial proliferation, reduce the risk of skin infection. Also, you want to think of the skin as having a brick and mortar configuration. So if you look at the little brick wall on your slide, it's there for a reason. So we want you to think of the skin cells as bricks, and we want you to think of the skin oils as the mortar. And when you think about a brick wall, you think how critically important the mortar is to the integrity of the brick wall. Yes, bricks are impervious to rain, to almost everything, but if you don't fill the gaps between those bricks, the brick wall falls down. When it comes to the skin, the skin cells are the bricks. Now, we've already talked about the fact that if the skin becomes overhydrated, macerated, the cells swell and become very vulnerable. What happens if the skin cells become become dehydrated if you have a dry skin environment. Well, then the skin cells shrink and that creates gaps between the skin cells and the mortar. So our goal is to keep the skin appropriately moisturized to maintain the lipids between the cells and to maintain a healthy brick wall that keeps out pathogens and keeps fluid in. Now look at the diagram on the top of your slide. That shows lipids in the skin, specifically ceramides. Ceramides are the most common skin oil. In healthy skin, you see a very high concentration of skin lipids. And the ceramides, the lipids, fill the gaps between the cells, maintain that barrier function. Now go to the right on that top diagram and you see that in pathologic conditions, the level of skin lipids is markedly reduced. What does that tell you? It means that you have thinned out mortar, you have multiple gaps in your barrier function, and it's very easy for pathogens and irritants to penetrate. So critical to maintain normal mortar, which translates into replace lost lipids. And we'll keep coming back to that. Now in your reading and when you go to conferences, you're gonna hear the term TEWL, or some uh, researchers refer to it as TOOL. 
that stands for transepidermal water loss, and it's actually a measure of skin health. When you have an intact barrier, there's very low levels of transepidermal water loss because the moisture is retained. As the barrier function is lost, as the skin is damaged, your transepidermal water loss levels go up. So I just want you to know what that means. You don't have to memorize anything specific in terms of numbers. Just recognize that transepidermal water loss is an indicator of skin health. And finally, I want you to remember that the normal thickness of the skin, including the epidermis and the dermis, is about two millimeters. So it's pretty thin. That actually can be helpful when it comes to pressure injury staging, which we'll get to later in this course. Okay, so now let's start breaking it down. We've looked big picture at the characteristics of the skin, what it does for us, what we should be doing to keep the skin healthy. Now let's look at each of the structures. Let's look at epidermis, let's look at dermis, and then let's look at soft tissue, sub-Q and muscle. The epidermis, of course, is the outer layer of the skin. It includes four to five sublayers. We're going to discuss each one of those. And in a healthy adult, the epidermis is about 20 cell layers thick. So let's break those sublayers down. The top layer, the stratum corneum, is composed essentially of dry, sloughing keratinocytes. So this layer upon which we lavish so much attention where we put our moisturizers, etc., that's a layer of dead cells. Now the good news is the moisturizers do penetrate into deeper layers and help to maintain that mortar balance and to fill the gaps between cells. But the top layer is sloughing cells. And you know that, you know that those dead epidermal cells essentially act as shingles. So you think about the roof of a house and you think about the overlapping shingles and how in an intact roof, the shingles keep everything out, okay? So they protect the house against rain, excessive wind, etc. That's what the stratum corneum does for you. So it's several cell layers thick and all of those cell layers are dead and dry and in the process of sloughing off. But in their time on the surface of the skin, those dead keratinocytes act as your shingles, keeping moisture in and keeping pathogens out. The next layer, the stratum lucidum, is not always present. It's only present in the palms of the hands and the soles of the foot. And it just gives extra protection to areas that are exposed to constant friction. The third layer down, the stratum granulosum, is several cell layers thick. It's a very important layer because this is where the ceramides are produced. So ceramides are the skin oils they are produced by the keratinocytes. They're stored in little organelles known as oddland bodies. And at the level of the stratum granulosum, they're released into the extracellular tissue where they attract moisture, help to maintain normal water balance in the skin. You don't have to remember this number, but it's interesting to note that normally the skin is 10 to 15% water. 
You don't want it more than that, and you don't want it less than that. So that's the good zone, 10 to 15%. The fourth layer is the stratum spinosum, and the critical aspect of this layer, this is where you have desmosomes. And what does that mean? Well, desmosomes actually are molecules that attach the cells to each other so that it provides structural integrity to the skin and reduces the risk of frictional trauma causing skin disruption. So the desmosomes play an important role. And finally, the basement layer is the stratum germinativum. This is a single layer of dividing cells. So what you want to think of is these little keratinocytes start out at the stratum germinativum where they're reproduced or they are produced and then they start to migrate upward. Okay, so think of the stratum germinativum as the basement. So they're produced in the basement, they start to migrate upward, migrate upward. As they migrate, they carry out some functions, they produce ceramides, release the ceramides, they gradually lose their nucleus and become filled with keratin so that by the time they reach the roof, they're very well prepared to serve as a shingle. Now the key cells and structures in the epidermis, the keratinocytes of course, also known as epidermal cells. So we think of them as epidermal cells. They can also be called keratinocytes because as they migrate, they become filled with keratin, which is that waterproof substance that makes them very effective shingles. So epidermal cells, keratinocytes, basically the same thing. You also have melanocytes. And you know, melanocytes give each of us our unique skin color. The more melanin you have in the skin, the more protection you have against radiation and against sun damage. So you see that in climates where it's very hot much of the year, where there's a lot of sun exposure, the skin is more darkly pigmented. In areas where there's very little skin or sun exposure, then you have very light-skinned individuals. So melanocytes play an important role in protecting individuals based on where they live. In the epidermis, you also have nerve receptors. So those are the little receptors that recognize temperature, recognize pressure, recognize pain, recognize irritants that cause itching. So you think how sensitive your skin is? You're aware of even breezes blowing against your skin. You're aware of light touch. The epidermis is acutely sensitive to any kind of painful stimulus acutely sensitive to extremes of temperature, so extreme cold, extreme heat. And the number of receptors is reflected in the fact that if you touch something hot, you pull your finger away before your brain even registers that it was hot. It's a reflex that protects you. So a lot of nerve receptors in the epidermis that communicate to nerve cells in the dermis. Also in the epidermis, you have Langerhans cells. They're part of your skin immune system. They actually recognize and present antigens to the CD4 cells. So they're kind of roaming around looking for troublemakers. When they find one, they attach to it. So they essentially drag it along, take it over to the CD4 cell and say, look what I found. 
and then the CD4 cells take it from there. Critical functions of the epidermis, we've already said the major function, as you see on the third bullet point, is protection. The epidermis does serve that barrier function between the external and internal environment. Critical things to recognize, there are no blood vessels in the epidermis. So when you think about it, when you get a blister, you just leak clear fluid. If you get a little skin tear, they just leak clear fluid because there are no blood vessels in the epidermis. You don't need blood vessels because you only have one layer of living reproducing cells and that layer is sitting right next to the dermis where there are many blood vessels. So no blood vessels. Another critical um, structure in the epidermis are the reed ridges, also sometimes called reed pegs. So when you look at the diagrams of the skin and you look at the junction between the epidermis and the dermis, you'll see they always show the epidermis as having these little pegs or ridges that dip down and interlock with the dermal papillae. So you get this kind of interlocking configuration that gives the skin a lot of its structural stability. When you go to start an IV on someone, normally you can put traction on the epidermis while you locate the vein, insert the angiocath, and when you let go, the epidermis and dermis move back into position. They move as one layer. That's because of that interlocking configuration, very important to skin integrity. We'll talk a little bit more later on about the fact that early in life and late in life, you have less of that interlocking configuration, which explains why infants and the elderly are much higher risk for skin tears. Now let's come down. We're going to look now at the junction between the epidermis and the dermis. This is known as the epidermal-dermal junction. It's also known as the basement membrane zone. And we've already talked about how important this interlocking configuration is, how it provides structural stability to the skin. If you have problems with a blistering skin condition like bullous pemphigoid, or um, epidermolysis bullosa, it typically attacks structures at the basement membrane zone, at the dermal-epidermal junction, and breaks down that interlocking configuration and allows the layers to move independently. So what does the basement membrane zone do? It anchors the epidermis to the dermis. Now let's move into the dermal layer. That's the inner layer of the skin. It's the much thicker layer of the skin because remember the epidermis, even in a healthy adult, is only 15 to 20 cell layers thick, very, very thin. So it's the dermis that adds thickness and a lot of the structural strength to the skin. Now they divide the dermis into the papillary dermis and the reticular dermis. Why? Well, simply because of some differences in structures. So the papillary dermis is the part that interfaces and interlocks with the epidermis. And you have these dermal papillae that project upwards and then the epidermal ridges that project down. Now, those little dermal papillae, they contain a lot of capillary loops that nourish 
that basement membrane layer of the epidermis. So it's a very important um, configuration. Not only does it provide structural integrity and strength, but it also provides critical nutrients to the reproducing layer of the epidermis. Now, those papillary loops extend up like this, but they're supported by a horizontally oriented layer of blood vessels. Why is that important? If the vessels are oriented horizontally, they are much more subject to point pressure. So you think about, say, stage two pressure injuries. It's like, well, how do you get a stage two pressure injury? Well, in part because the skin itself is nourished primarily by vessels that are oriented horizontally. So point pressure, like you get with a medical device, can occlude those horizontally oriented vessels and cause localized ischemia. So just be aware of that. Then the reticular dermis is the deeper component of the dermis. That's where you have your extensive network of blood vessels. It's where you have your lymphatics. It's where you have a lot of collagen and elastin. The type of collagen in the dermis is primarily type 1 collagen. That will be important when we talk about wound healing. So in the dermis, primarily type 1 collagen. Now, if anybody ever asked you, do you think this wound extends into the reticular dermis or do you think it stops at the papillary dermis? There's no way to tell, so just pick one and stick with your initial statement. What are the key cells in the dermis? Fibroblasts and macrophages are the two most important types of cells in the dermis. Fibroblasts, as you know, are the only cells in the body that can synthesize collagen and elastin, which are the two connective tissue proteins most prominent in the dermis. So of course you would have fibroblasts present in the dermis to provide collagen repair, to provide elastin repair for any minor damage. Also, in the dermis, you have large numbers of macrophages, and macrophages are white blood cells derived from the monocytes, and they provide protection. So they're roaming around, they can identify any bacteria, any fungal organisms, and they can phagocytize those organisms to prevent infection from occurring. So macrophage is critical to maintaining skin health and preventing skin infection super critical when you have an open wound in preventing wound infection. Also in the dermis, you have mast cells. Mast cells produce histamine in response to allergens or irritants, so they are the architects of the inflammatory response. The inflammatory response is part of your skin immune system because it causes vasodilation. That's what histamine does. It causes vasodilation which brings more white blood cells to the area to take on whatever problem has occurred. A very important set of structures that are anatomically located in the dermis are the hair follicles, the sebaceous glands, and the sweat glands. These structures are known as epidermal appendages, even though, as you can see from the diagram, they're located anatomically deep in the dermis, at the very base of the dermis. So why are they called epidermal appendages? 
Well, if you look carefully at the slide, you'll see that these structures are lined with the basement membrane of the epidermis. So it's almost like they were sitting in the epidermis and fell down to the base of the dermis and took that basement membrane layer with them. Now, why is it important for us to talk about these separately? It's important because when we get to wound healing, there are two ways in which wounds heal. One is by replacing lost structures with more of the same. And the other is by scar tissue formation. So it's critical to know which structures in the skin and the soft tissue can reproduce and which ones cannot. So look at bullet point two. Almost everything in the dermis can reproduce. You can make more collagen. You can make more elastin. You can make more blood vessels. You can make more of everything in the dermis except you cannot make more hair follicles. You cannot make more sebaceous glands. You cannot make more sweat glands. And you kind of know this because you know in taking care of a burn patient that if that burn extends to the deep dermis or beyond, that patient will never have hair in that area again, will never have oil production, will never have sweat production in that area again. Same thing when you have an incision. So you don't get hair growth in an incision because it goes all the way through the skin into deeper structures. So the bottom line is, once you eliminate hair follicles, they don't come back. Once you eliminate sebaceous glands, they don't come back. Once you eliminate sweat glands, they don't come back. So when you talk about wounds that can heal by regeneration, replacing lost structures with more of the same, it's wounds that are limited to the epidermis and the upper dermis. Any wound that extends to the deep dermis that causes destruction of the epidermal appendages, those will not be replaced. Instead, they'll be, there will be substitution with scar tissue. So we'll keep coming back to that. It's an important concept. Okay, so we've gone through the skin, the epidermis and the dermis, and now we're down to the subcutaneous tissue, the hypodermis, also known as the fat which actually is a critical tissue layer that does not get credit for the important roles it plays. You never hear somebody say, you know, I pretty much like my fat. I think I've got just about the right amount. I like the way it covers my bony prominences and protects me. But we should say that because when you think of patients like you see in this slide, what do you think? You see someone who is acutely vulnerable to pressure, to shear, because there is no padding. So the subcutaneous tissue plays the critical role of providing padding and even pressure distribution. What are the key components of fat? Well, obviously the fat itself, the adipose tissue, some connective tissue, some blood vessels, though not that many, some lymphatics and some nerve cells. A couple of critical things to think about in relation to the fat. We've already talked about how critically important it is in providing protection against pressure and shear. I'm betting that a lot of you have noticed that your very thin patients are much higher risk than your heavy patients. 
So when you have a patient who comes in with essentially no sub-Q tissue, you know you have to provide extremely high-level protection if you're going to keep them from experiencing skin breakdown. The lady in the slide gave my permission, gave me permission to use her photo in an educational presentation. You will see she has no fat and essentially has lost all of her muscle. She did not have breakdown because she retained normal sensation and she retained mobility. But if you took that same patient and you took her to surgery and she was in surgery for eight to 10 hours and then in PACU for two to four hours and then in critical care, how long would it take before she developed significant pressure injuries? Not long at all. So she's extremely vulnerable. The other thing to know about subcutaneous tissue, and I know you kind of don't believe this, but it does not regenerate. You do not make more fat. You're like, yes, I do. I make it at night when I'm asleep and not paying attention. Here's what happens. We basically make all of our fat cells when we're kindergarten age. So as young children, we make all of our fat cells. Now, fat cells are like bank accounts. You can add to those fat cells and they stretch and you get increasing sub-Q mass, or you can withdraw fat and they shrink and your sub-Q mass goes down, but you don't make more. That's why liposuction works, because once you suck out fat cells, they're gone. And then if you keep eating a lot, of course, you just deposit in other fat cells. So critically important to recognize two things about fat. It plays an important role in protection, and it is not reproduced. What about the muscle layer? So you come down, you've got skin, fat, muscle. The muscle layer sits right next to the bone. And the muscle layer out of all of the tissue layers has the highest metabolic rate. Because when you think about it, the muscle is always working, as opposed to the skin and the fat. The skin and the fat play kind of a passive role, but the muscle every day plays an active role in terms of maintaining position, changing position. So much higher metabolic rate, much higher rate of oxygen utilization, which means that the muscle layer is the layer that is most sensitive, most vulnerable to the effects of reduced blood flow, most vulnerable to ischemia. And that's the layer that's sitting right next to the bone. So when you lie or sit for prolonged periods, especially on an unyielding surface, you've got bone pressing right against the muscle, interfering with blood flow, causing ischemia and causing muscle damage. Most of your deep pressure injuries actually start at the bone muscle interface. So you think about your stage three, your stage four, your unstageables, and some of your deep tissue injuries. Where does that damage start? Probably at muscle bone interface. Also important to recognize, muscle does not regenerate. So once you get injury extending to the muscle, that muscle is lost and will be replaced with scar tissue if we can get it to heal. 
Okay, so we've talked about the structures of the skin. Now let's review the functions of the skin and then we'll talk about keeping the skin healthy. The critical, critical function is protection. We've talked about that a lot. That's what I really want you to remember. Now there are some secondary functions. Definitely the skin and the related structures contribute to temperature control because you have blood vessels that can dilate or constrict. So dilate to contribute to evaporative loss, constrict to retain. You also have sweat glands that can contribute to evaporative loss or that can retain fluids. So definitely temperature control is affected by skin structures. Primary is protection. Yes, the skin contributes to excretion. When you sweat, you lose water and you lose sodium chloride. Very important in terms of sensory awareness, contributes to um, vitamin D levels because sunlight activates steroids in the skin to produce vitamin D and an important component of body image. But the one I want you to remember, protection. Now just a couple of other things. When you talk about normal skin flora, you know that your skin is crawling with organisms all the time. All of the little signs in our hospitals today remind us about all the organisms on our skin. Resident bacteria are literally organisms that live on the skin. So you're always going to find them there. It's like, this is my home. So Staphylococcus epidermidis, Carinibacterium, those are resident bacteria. Transient bacteria are organisms that are not usually found on the skin. They're kind of just, you know, passing through. They're easily removed by routine hygiene. What you want to remember is there's always a lot of organisms on the skin. So if you are getting a wound culture, it's absolutely critical not only to flush the wound, but either to avoid the surrounding skin or to clean the surrounding skin so that you don't get them contaminating your culture. What about epidermal regeneration? How long does it take to replace lost keratinocytes with new keratinocytes? How long does it take a cell to go from the basement to the roof? Well, in young adults, it's about 20 days. So they have that healthy, fresh-looking skin. But as we age, the turnover time gets longer. By the time we're elderly, somebody looks at our skin and says, wow, Looks like those cells have been there a while. Yes, they're waiting for their replacements and it takes a lot longer for those cells to migrate from the basement to the roof because they're old. So they're kind of crawling up the steps. So we know that in young adults, it's like 20 days. In older individuals, it's 30 days. In the elderly, it might be even longer than that. There's a couple of other things that are important to remember in terms of epidermal turnover. We talk about steroids and their negative impact on skin health and the fact that you get thinner skin in patients on steroids. Why is that? Well, one effect of steroids is to block um, epidermal reproduction in that basement membrane layer. So remember you have these little cells down there that are producing new cells and sending them to the surface. But in a patient on steroids, the rate of reproduction is significantly reduced. So there's many fewer cells migrating toward the surface, 
takes a lot longer to heal a surface wound and the skin itself becomes much thinner, much more vulnerable. On the flip side, and in terms of good news, any kind of injury, any kind of skin loss stimulates reproduction at that basement membrane layer. So it's like a message goes out that says, hey guys, we have a defect measuring four by six on the right thigh. Until this defect is covered, everyone's working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, all leave is canceled. Now you've got very motivated keratinocytes, reproduction speeds up, the defect is resurfaced, everything goes back to normal. So steroids slow reproduction and thin the skin, injury stimulates reproduction to eradicate the defect. The last thing we're gonna cover in this section is what are the things that we should be doing on a routine basis to keep the skin healthy? And when we talk about healthy skin, we're talking about an intact barrier. So what are the things we do every day? We clean the skin. We shower ourselves. We clean the skin for our patients. So what should we be thinking about? Well, we should be thinking we want the surface of the skin to remain acidic. So you're gonna see a lot of cleansing products that are labeled pH balanced. If you can do patient cleansing with pH balanced, no rinse cleansers, it helps to keep the skin, number one, acidic, and it eliminates that soap film that can cause an irritant response and problems. So you're looking for pH balanced, no rinse cleansers, super fatted, Non-alkaline soaps can help to replace lost lipids and keep the skin soft and supple. What about CHG? Because we see a lot of protocols that call for routine bathing with chlorhexidine gluconate impregnated wipes, especially in high-risk areas like our ICUs. And we have pretty good data that says that routine use of CHG-based products does reduce the levels of pathogens on the skin and does reduce the incidence of um, central line associated skin infections. So can CHG bathing be a good thing? Yes. It can definitely reduce um, serious infections. Is it a bad thing? So. I've heard anecdotal reports. I've talked to people who feel like they see more irritant reactions when they're bathing with CHG. But so far, we do not have any objective data that says that CHG increases skin reactions, allergic reactions, or skin breakdown. So if you're in a system and you're using CHG-based products to reduce um, skin infections and to reduce bloodstream infections, yes, you want to be adherent to that. One thing you should think about is when you're selecting emollient products to keep the skin soft and supple, you have to make sure that they're compatible with CHG. Also, you have to think about age issues, and we'll come back to this, but basically CHG has been found to be safe and effective all the way from two months throughout the lifespan. What about infants younger than two months? We do not have good data on those products in that patient population. So currently CHG is the recommended and accepted protocol 
for routine bathing of high-risk individuals to reduce the incidence of skin infections and bloodstream infections. Ongoing research, so those recommendations may change. That's where we are right now. Individualized bathing frequency, so we know that older individuals produce lower levels of skin oils every time we bathe somebody. We tend to strip some of the skin oils. So in many agencies, you'll see that bathing frequency for older individuals is reduced to every other day or three times a week instead of every day. And that makes good sense from a science perspective. We want to teach our care providers, so your nursing techs or CNAs or your home providers, to use gentle technique and soft cloths when bathing the skin. <clears throat> a lot of us were taught, I started out as a CNA, and a lot of us were taught cleanliness is next to godliness and we were going to scrub our patients clean. And you still see a lot of scrubbing going on. But when you have fragile skin and you're cleaning vigorously with a hospital-based washcloth, it's like taking sandpaper to their skin. So you want to rethink, what are we trying to do? We're trying to remove organisms. We're trying to remove secretions. We're trying to keep the barrier intact. So gentle cleansing, non-aggressive claws, okay, non-abrasive claws with pH balanced, ceramide rich, oil rich products. So now we come down to moisturizers, and I want you to differentiate between emollients and humectants. Emollients are good for everyone. So emollients are basically oils. So you'll see a lot of your products now, if you look at the ingredients, they'll talk about ceramides. A lot of hygienic products include ceramides. A lot of cosmetic products include ceramides because now there's increasing recognition that ceramides do fill the gaps between the skin cells and they're critical skin oils. You'll see other skin oils incorporated in products, so dimethicone helps to fill gaps, any kind of oil-based product. So your lotions, your creams, your moisturizers are going to include emollients that penetrate the stratum corneum, fill the gaps between the cells. They're good for fragile skin, they're good for normal skin. What about humectants? Humectants are different. Humectants actively attract water to the skin. They're intended for extremely dry skin, for xerosis. Your humectants are things like urea-based products. So um, I'm trying to remember the name of one, I can't think of it right now but your hydroxyurea products and also Attractane, which is available over the counter, all of those are either urea-based or they're another molecule that actively attracts water. <clears throat> those are very appropriate for extremely dry skin, very appropriate for dry feet, totally inappropriate for very fragile, macerated skin, You'd never want something that attracts water if the skin is already macerated. And most of these humectants have a desloughing effect because they're intended for that very dry, rough skin. And you don't want a desloughing effect on fragile skin. 
So emollients are appropriate for everyone. Humectants are appropriate only for patients with very dry skin. I thought of the other, um, the urea-based product is lachydrin. It's a prescription product, but you'll see dermatologists recommend that a lot for patients with extremely dry skin. And across the board, when you're applying emollients and humectants, you should apply them to barely damp skin because one of the things they do is lock in that moisture. What about common skin problems? What if you have somebody with itchy skin and they're constantly doing this and they tell you my skin itches, I'm scratching all the time, that's how I got this um, break in the skin here. What are some things you can do to reduce itching? Well, of course you're gonna use emollients. You're gonna try to correct dry skin, but also you can use soothing products like Aveeno, which is oatmeal-based, or Burrow Solution, which is aluminum acetate. So those are common products that are used in dermatology that you can recommend as well. What about your diabetic patients with dry, scaly feet, or sometimes just older patients with very dry, scaly feet? Well, you can do a vinegar water soak where you do one part vinegar to three parts water, about a 10 to 15 minute soak. Why vinegar? Because it's acetic acid and it's a keratolytic, meaning it penetrates that very dry outer layer of skin and takes water into the skin itself. It has a de-sloughing effect, so when you take them out of the vinegar water soak, you can buff the skin and a lot of that dry skin will come off. And then you can apply either a heavy-duty heavy emollient like Aquaphor, petrolatum, eucerin, any of those. Or you can use a humectant like lachydrin or a tractane or something like that. Now I know you're thinking, hmm, you just said to do a soak and I know that the current recommendations are do not do soaks for diabetic feet. So let's think through that. Why do we tell diabetic patients don't soak your feet? Number one, we're concerned that they won't check the temperature of the water and they'll burn their feet. Number two, we're concerned that they won't dry well between their toes and they'll get fissures. But if you're the provider, you can control the temperature and you can make sure that you dry well between the toes. So yes, brief soaks are appropriate and are safe if you're in charge. We have many, many patients with thin, fragile skin. Our elderly patients, our critically ill patients, our very malnourished patients. And so it all comes down to gentle care, gentle technique, and routine use of emollients. Your oil-based products penetrate the stratum corneum, fill the gaps between the skin cells, help to keep the skin healthy, help to maintain that barrier. When should you send a patient to dermatology? Anytime that you see a problem that you're not sure what it is, you're not sure what should be done, or maybe you thought you knew what was going on and so you initiated management but it was ineffective, never ever hesitate to refer. When you look at the dermatology textbooks and you see they're hundreds of pages long, you know there's many, many things that can go wrong with the skin. We know about this many of them. So everything else goes to dermatology. If in doubt, refer. 
Okay, so in summary, you're almost to a break. Normal skin is acidic and supple. That's always your goal. Maintain acid pH, keep the skin soft and supple. The epidermis, outer layer, 20 cell layers thick. The only actively living, reproducing layer is that basal layer. The epidermis is the critical layer in terms of barrier function. The dermis provides strength and support to the skin. Primary components of the dermis are collagen and elastin. The subcutaneous layer, remember, is critical in terms of padding and protection. And the muscle layer has the highest metabolic rate and is the most vulnerable to loss of blood flow, to ischemia. Across the board, what should you do to keep the skin healthy? Use products that are pH balanced so that you maintain that acid mantle. Use moisturizers on a routine basis to replace skin lipids so that you maintain that intact brick wall. Manage dry skin and pruritus so that you don't get cracks in the skin from scratching. Okay, so that's it for part one. And when you're ready, we'll move on to part two. Thank you.